Welcome to Family History Mysteries, a podcast that tells the stories uncovered through family history research, the unexpected stories of everyday people. I am an avid family historian who has been compiling my family tree for over 15 years, with nearly 20,000 people recorded in my trees. Episode 18, Theo's Duty. I'm thrilled to have a guest expert in this episode, Ray Blair. Ray is a family historian and author whose husband is a direct descendant of Theophilus Futural, the person we are featuring in this episode. I have come across this family member through my family research and looking into Hannah Williams from episode seven, The Convict, who is my husband's five times great-grandmother. I contacted Ray as she had messaged me via a family tree site back in September 2020 informing me that she was close to launching a novel that she had written on Theo titled More Than I Ever Had. The concept for writing the book came about in March 2019 when she was thinking about what she would get for her grandson's first birthday. She thought she would write him a children's book, a story about his six times great-grandfather. But in plotting out the book, she realised the story was best told not in that format, so she decided to plough ahead and write the story for a general audience. After more than three years of research and writing, Theo's story went out into the world. She's received great reviews. It's been described as a captivating read, a page turner, definitely the best historical drama I have found. And one reader stated, once I started more than I ever had, I simply could not put it down. Hello, Ray. Hello, Nicole. Thank you for that lovely introduction. My pleasure. So when did you first become aware of your husband's ancestor, Theo Futrell? So Theophilus Futrell, who I'll call Theo, is the four times great-grandfather of my husband. Early in our married life, one of his aunties showed me a large red leather book called The Futrell Saga. It had been compiled by one of the Adelaide branch of the Futrell family with contributions from various family members from around Australia. And this book gave facts about Theo and his family, which was so interesting, but it didn't really give me the story. And for me, story is always about the why and not about the what. And I had so many questions about why he made the decisions he made, which created the path for his life and impacted on everyone around him. The Futural Saga was the launch pad for my research into Theo and his family. And Nicole, you know that you've hit the jackpot if you're researching a family member with a unique name. So it's almost impossible to research a William Smith or a Sarah Brown. But I had the magnificent name of Theophilus Futural to hunt down. But it wasn't as easy as I thought it would be. Theo couldn't read or write. Therefore, the recording of his surname was interpreted by what the person writing it down heard. Today, the family has settled on the surname F-E-U-T-R-I-L-L. But we've found records also with the name spelt F-U-T-R-E-L-L, F-E-W-T-R-E-L-L, and F-E-W-T-E-R-E-L-L, just to name a few. And the transcription services often confuse the E-U in his name written in cursive as N. So we also have F-E-N-T-R-I-L to search for. Since I published my novel more than I ever had, I've continued my research into the future name which is supported by a community of passionate family historians, and I need to acknowledge their valuable contribution to what I'm about to share. So who was Theo Futrell? So let me tell you what I know about him. 
Theo was born around early November 1771 in Bilston, Staffordshire, which is in the West Midlands of England. He was illegitimate and the only son of Sarah Futrell. Whilst the Futrells came from the nearby area of Trissel, Sarah's mother's family was from Bilston. The name of Theo's father is not listed on his baptism record. Theo's mother died in 1775 when Theo was three. And at the time of her death, both of her parents had already died, as had five brothers and also a sister. Two other sisters were alive at the time of Sarah's death, Anne and Mary, who both lived in Trissel. It's unknown who raised him, but Theo named his eldest daughter Elizabeth, which may have been after his widow aunt-in-law, who lived in Bilston, called Elizabeth Futrell. But his second daughter was called Mary, so it's tempting to think maybe his Aunt Mary took him in. In any respect, by the age of 18, in 1789, Theo had gained the trade of bucklemaker. He was relatively tall for an Englishman of the time at five foot eight, which was two inches above average height. He had brown hair, blue eyes and fair complexion. But just for context, the average height of an Australian man today is five foot ten. So Theo was the equivalent of a six foot man. In 1789, when Theo was 18, an active recruitment campaign for the military started in England. After America refused to take any more English convicts, and the country now known as Australia was chosen as the new penal colony. The first fleet of ships carrying soldiers and convicts arrived at Port Jackson in January 1788. Nicole, you mentioned the first fleet in some detail in episode seven, and it's well covered elsewhere, but just briefly for context here, the New South Wales Marine Corps, which came with the first fleet, was under the command of Major Robert Ross. And almost immediately, the first fleet arrived Ross disagreed with most of Governor Phillips' decisions and directions, putting the two men constantly at odds. Major Ross actively encouraged the Marines to work against Governor Phillip, which made the success of the colony that much harder. Once the Home Office in London understood the situation, an order arrived in Sydney Cove in June 1789, so 18 months after they arrived, to the effect that the Marines were to be withdrawn and a special call was to be raised to relieve them. However, due to the remoteness and unpopularity of the posting to the penal colony, the newly raised New South Wales Corps ended up being composed of officers on half pay, troublemakers, soldiers paroled from military prisons, and those with few prospects who were gambling on making a life for themselves in the new colony. And I think Theo fits into that last category. With the sun high in the English sky in 1789, 18-year-old Theo Futrell heard the call from the military. Leaving behind his factory work making buckles in Bilston, Theo travelled the 10 miles south to Birmingham to enlist in the New South Wales Corps in Captain William Hill's company. After six months of training, Theo gathered on Woolwich Wharf with around 100 other officers and men and some women and children on 19 January 1790, with the chill of winter sitting on his shoulders. His discomfort on that damp wharf was nothing compared to the 1,006 convicts, which was 928 male and 78 females, who were shivering further along in shackles and wearing very little. And one by one, the convicts' names were checked off the register before they disappeared into the bowels of the three ships moored before them, the Surprise, the Scarborough and the Neptune. In organising the second fleet to sail to the new penal colony, the English government wanted to do things a little differently from the first fleet. 
whilst the first fleet was deemed a success, it was very expensive at £55,000. Tenders were sought to contract transport and supply ships for the second fleet. The company who managed the first fleet was unsuccessful in their bid as being too expensive, and instead the successful tender was awarded to Camden Calvert King, the largest company in London involved in the slave trade. The government paid Camden Calvert King a fee per person boarding the ships. The second fleet comprised six ships in total, the Neptune, Surprise and Scarborough, which transported core members and male and female convicts, plus the Lady Juliana, who had on board 222 female convicts, and the store ships, the Justinian, and the converted warship, the HMS Guardian. When Theo stepped on board the transport ship, the Neptune, as did Captain Nicholas Nepean, Lieutenant John MacArthur, and his family and others, they were not to know it would be the start of a six-month nightmare. The store ships, the Justinian and the HMS Guardian, and the female convict ship, the Lady Juliana, had already departed when the Neptune, Surprise and Scarborough sailed away from English waters together. It wasn't until they reached the Cape of Good Hope and they found the HMS Guardian had hit an iceberg and could not continue its journey. The Guardian's passengers and convicts and some of its cargo were distributed between the three ships. The first fleet settlers, which arrived in 1788, so 18 months earlier, had long been expecting to receive supplies from Great Britain. A great deal of frustration and anxiety was felt in the growing absence of ships as supplies dwindled and precious food rations were reduced. On 3 June 1790, things changed. Upon sighting the first ship to arrive since the first fleet, Lieutenant Colonel David Collins wrote it was, to the inexpressible satisfaction of every heart in the settlement that the long looked for signal was made for a ship at the South Head. Every countenance was instantly cheered and wore the lively expression of eagerness, joy and anxiety. Captain Watkin Tench went a bit further in his journal and he said, at length the clouds of misfortune began to separate and on the evening of the 3rd of June, the joyful cry of the flag's up resounded in every direction. I was sitting in my hut musing on our fate when a confused clamour in the street drew my attention. I opened my door and several women with children in their arms running to and fro with distracted looks, congratulating each other and kissing their infants with the most passionate and extravagant marks of fondness. I needed no more, but instantly started out and ran to a hill where by the assistance of a pocket glass, my hopes were realised. My next door neighbour, a brother officer, was with me, but we could not speak. We wrung each other by the hand with eyes and hearts overflowing. Their joy was to be short-lived, however. When the passengers disembarked, it was, quote, a little mortifying to find on board the first ship that arrived, a cargo so unnecessary and unprofitable as 222 females instead of a cargo of provisions, unquote. Poor men. When the women landed, quote, many of them appeared to be loaded with the infirmities incident to old age and to be very improper subjects for any of the purposes of the infant colony. And instead of being capable of labour, they appeared to be never likely to be any other than a burden to the settlement, unquote. It wasn't until the Neptune, Surprise and Scarborough arrived on the 27th of June, 1790, that the true horror and depravity of their voyage became public. I do cover this journey in my book and it's been well documented elsewhere 
but it's worth noting that even before they'd left English waters, Lieutenant MacArthur was so dissatisfied with the conditions on board the Neptune and following conflict with the ship's captain that MacArthur and Captain Gilbert engaged in a duel. Fortunately, no one was injured, but the captain was replaced to everyone's relief. However, the new captain, a Captain Trail, was described by Elizabeth MacArthur in her journal as a perfect sea monster. Midway through the journey, the situation became intolerable for the MacArthur family and they transferred to the Scarborough mid-seas. The rest of the people on board had to tough it out, Theo included. The conditions on board the three ships were so brutal that the mortality rate of the second fleet was 40% versus 5.4% of the first fleet. And the Neptune had about three times more deaths than any other ship. Once the ships arrived with their starving passengers and tortured convicts, many perishing in the water before they could wade to the shore, the crew of the ship set up stalls and sold the surplus provisions at a profit. There was an uproar at the treatment of the convicts and other passengers on board, and the English government changed the way it engaged contractors in the future, such that contractors were paid per passenger who arrived alive. Theo was lucky to survive. With the arrival of the second fleet passengers, the population of the colony doubled and the medical facilities were stretched to breaking point. When they arrived, there were 50 patients in the hospital and that number swelled to 500. Hospital tents were hastily erected and patients had to lay on the cold ground with nothing but straw beneath them to add some comfort. Bodies were taken to the Sydney burial ground on a daily basis. In the two and a half years since the first fleet had arrived, the settlement was taking shape, but so many of it remained a campsite, with only a few buildings constructed from bricks, like the hospital and the governor's house, and four barracks for the soldiers made from the timber. They cleared land to plant gardens and crops, but everything looked on the verge of dying. So apart from those Australian historical figures, such as Lieutenant MacArthur and Captain Nepean, who are also on board the Neptune with Theo, there was another person on board who will play a key role in Theo's life. Who was that person? Yes, indeed. On board Theo's ship, the Neptune, was a 17-year-old convict woman from Norwich called Anne Carey. She was sentenced to transportation for seven years for stealing. And as the female convicts were free to roam upper deck during the journey, unlike the male convicts who remained shackled below, we have to imagine that Anne and Theo's paths crossed during the voyage. As a woman, Anne had a significantly easier time on board than the convict men, who were only allowed up on deck twice during the six-month voyage and often had to endure sitting in waist-deep freezing waters. But still, Anne was incredibly lucky to survive the journey also. But almost as soon as Theo and Anne arrived in Sydney Cove, she was shipped off to Norfolk Island. And the occupation of Norfolk Island, which began in 1788, was to serve two ends. And one was to make available masts and sails from pine and flax for the refurbishment of British ships and to prevent the island from falling into the hands of His Majesty's rivals, the French. And with the arrival of the New South Wales Corps, the Marines could either return to England or transfer across to the New South Wales Corps or take land on Norfolk Island to produce food. The community has struggled for a long time and at one point they were saved by eating the oily Mount Pitt birds. Not long after Anne arrived in Norfolk, she met and started a relationship with a former New South Wales Marine officer who'd come on the first fleet called Stephen Gilbert. 
Gilbert took a discharge and was granted land in Balls Bay on Norfolk Island. And I mentioned Major Robert Ross earlier, the man in charge of the recalled New South Wales Marines. Well, Governor Phillips sent the recalcitrant Major Ross to Norfolk Island to be Commandant in March 1790, obviously to give the Governor some breathing space. Three months after Theo arrived in September 1790, his captain, Captain Hill, selected Theo in a small group for secondment to Norfolk Island, as Major Ross had requested reinforcements to help speed up development. During Theo's time there, the development of Queensborough and Arthursvale progressed, but Ross's regime and policies were barbaric, and Captain Hill clashed with him often over Ross's treatment of the convicts. Theo's name appears in Ralph Clark's journal, Ralph Clark being the Quartermaster General, regarding an interaction Theo had with the Mary Shepherd. It was noted because from that interaction, Mary received 50 lashes from using Major Ross's name to Theo without Ross's permission. Anne Carey, the convict woman from the Neptune, and Stephen Gilbert were married in 1791 on Norfolk Island in a mass marriage event involving about 100 couples during a brief visit of Reverend Richard Johnson to the island. It's likely that Theo and his brother soldiers would have witnessed the event, and it's highly possible that Theo and Anne Carey, now Gilbert, would have also crossed paths during their time on the island. Captain's Hill Company, including Theo, returned to Sydney on December 1791, at which time Major Ross was also recalled. Once back, the Scotsman, Major Ross, was still prickling from his encounters with Captain William Hill on the island, and so challenged him to a duel for slander to his reputation. The two men faced each other with pistols on 12 December 1791, but there were no injuries and Ross was sent back to England. But this wouldn't be the last duel Theo would witness on Sydney soil. On 14 September 1801, after a long-winded petty feud between grown men, Lieutenant John MacArthur, who dueled with the ship captain in 1790, would fight his second duel, this time with Colonel William Patterson. MacArthur ended up shooting Patterson through the shoulder and was arrested and sent back to England. Of course, he returned to the colony because his contribution to Australian history was far from over. The whole story of this affair is featured as a blog post on my website, but I wonder what Theo Futrell made of it all. With Theo back in Sydney, Anne and Stephen Gilbert continued to try to make a success of farming on Norfolk Island. They appeared happy in their married life, and in 1792, Anne had a baby to Stephen Gilbert, a girl they called Sarah. But the farm wasn't working, and Stephen Gilbert re-enlisted as an officer in the New South Wales Corps. When they returned to Sydney Cove in 1793, he was granted 110 acres of land in the Bankstown area and one-sixth share of 150 acres in Mulgrave Park in the Hawkesbury area. They called the Bankstown land Gilbert Farm and made it their home. Meanwhile, Theo was making romantic connections of his own when he met a female convict called Anne Short. And I realise this might be confusing with two Anne's in the story, but bear with me. Anne Short was an Irish lass born in Dublin but we can't find any record of why she was transported. She arrived on the Kitty in 1792, aged 15, as part of the Fourth Fleet. In 1794, she'd met Theo and they had a son called Joseph. After four years in the colony, things were looking up for the 23-year-old. He'd finally had a family of his own, and that must have been something very special for a man who'd been orphaned as a three-year-old child. Theo and Anne Short married the next year in Sydney's first church, St Philip's Church of England. But that year Theo lost his captain, the man he'd served under for the past four years. 
Captain Hill had elected to return to England, despondent with the direction of the colony, and he vowed to help matters upon his return to England. He appeared to be a man of good conscience, and one can only imagine the impact he would have had on Theo over that very early time of settlement where survival at times was not guaranteed. Unfortunately, Captain Hill never reached his destination and his gruesome fate was described in the European magazine, London Review and elsewhere. Once Captain Hill departed the colony, Theo then reported to Captain William Patterson, yes, the same one that John MacArthur would shoot in 1801, six years later. In 1795, so five years after Theo's arrival and the year he married Anne Short, Governor John Hunter arrived to replace Major Gross, who temporarily replaced the unwell Governor Philip, who'd returned to England. By this stage, which is seven years into the settlement, the military were a law unto themselves. Hunter was tasked with bringing the military to heel, but the Rum Corps, as it was known, was in full swing and a powerful creature. In 1796, Theo and Anne's happy married life was about to take a turn. Governor Hunter issued an arrest warrant for the 24-year-old private Theophilus Futural. I can't imagine what it must have been like for the young couple to know that if Theo was found guilty of the charges, he'd face execution. Theo was caught up in what is known as the Bourne Incident. In February 1796, former convict John Bourne, who'd proven his value to the community through the construction of mills, upset the New South Wales Corps by being responsible for a soldier losing his job. This soldier, who I believe was called James Grace and John Bourne, had had a long-standing feud since they were convicts together. Bourne's actions were a petty response to overhearing Grace belittling him. The company to which Grace belonged to was outraged at Bourne's actions and decided to teach him a lesson. A group of soldiers, of which Theo was one, marched to his house in Dawes Point, which is located northwest of what is now Circular Quay. Bourne was held down and in front of his terrified wife, the soldiers demolished his home and garden. After the soldiers left cheering, Bourne feared further reprisals and refused to proceed with charges. William Balmain interfered and convinced him to make a statement. Bourne's sworn statement detailed the rampage and, quote, that he was assaulted and knocked down and his life put in danger by three soldiers of the name of William Harrison, John Carr and Theophilus Futrell, and that most of his property contained within his house was destroyed, end quote. As the military was responsible for carrying out warrants for arrest, John MacArthur ordered to delay the action and led the soldiers' negotiations with Governor Hunter in an effort to have the charges withdrawn. As part of the process, a series of letters were exchanged between Judge Advocate Balmain, who was representing the civil authority, and Captain John MacArthur, who represented the military. Tempers frayed and insults given to the point that Balmain told MacArthur he was, quote, a base rascal and an atrocious liar and villain, end quote. Balmain then challenged MacArthur to a duel, which was subsequently withdrawn. And there's something about MacArthur and duels, isn't there? <laughs> But this was Governor Hunter's moment to stamp his dominance on the military, but he didn't have the firepower to back him up. Against his better judgment, he acquiesced to the MacArthur, who'd said the soldiers felt remorse for their actions and would compensate Bourne for his losses. The charges were dropped. Thea was free, and that must have been a relief for him and his young wife. Meanwhile, MacArthur, who had been writing to the Home Office in England, criticising Hunter's administration, 
and once they'd received word of Hunter's capitulation in the Bourne incident, Hunter was recalled back to London. MacArthur had saved Theo's neck, but importantly, he'd cemented his power in the colony. That must have been such a, a tense time for Theo and his family. He's married to an Irish convict and short, they have a young son, Joseph. Did they have any other children together? Well, later that year, without the threat of Theo's potential execution hanging over them, Theo and Anne were free to celebrate when she became pregnant again. Their little boy had turned two in the October and Theo's family was expanding. On 15th of March, 1797, Anne delivered a baby boy they called Theophilus, but the baby didn't survive the birth. And two days later, Anne also died. Theo's life was utterly devastated, burying first his baby son and then his precious wife in the Sydney burial ground. He left that cemetery as a single parent with his young son, Joseph, in tow. And I'm sure it wasn't lost on him that Joseph was the same age Theo was when his own mother had died. But Joseph had one thing that Theo didn't have. Joseph had his father. Today's Sydney Town Hall has been erected on the site of the Sydney burial ground. It's about a 25 minute uphill walk from the Rock Circular Quay area. And many of the graves were moved before the town hall was built, but many remained. And there is a Sydney burial ground inventory available online if anyone's interested in those details. So back to Theo, of course, Theo had no option but to get back to work. And the next year in 1798, Theo as a single parent was seconded for four years to serve in Parramatta. And Parramatta was settled 10 years earlier and initially called Rose Hill, but was renamed in 1790. It's about 25 kilometres from Sydney Cove and was established as a Western outlying farm colony. By the time of Theo's secondment, Anne Carey, remember the convict woman from the Neptune, whose married name is now Anne Gilbert. She was living with her husband, Stephen, and their now three children, Sarah, Hannah and John, on Gilbert Farm in the Bankstown area. The farm was about 12 kilometres from the Parramatta Barracks. Stephen would have also been stationed there and Theo crossed paths with the Gilbert family, reigniting his acquaintance with Anne. And like so many others in the colony, tragedy struck the Gilbert family when on 14 January 1799, Anne's husband Stephen and their two-year-old son John died. Unfortunately, we don't know the causes of their death. Anne was now a widow with two daughters. Theo was a widower with a son. Seven months later, Anne was pregnant and married to Theo, blending their family of three children. Theo assumed ownership of the 110 acres of Gilbert Farm, which was part of the Holdsworthy Parish in Bankstown, and renamed it to Futural Farm. Their farm was bordered on two sides by water, the Georges River and a small tributary called Lucas Creek. They shared a boundary with Murphy Farm, which was owned by Michael Murphy, who you talk about in the call in episode seven. Six months later, Anne delivered a baby girl they called Elizabeth in February 1800. However, after experiencing so much loss of family, it must have been particularly devastating for Anne and Theo that their baby daughter didn't survive. A year later, when Theo is 29, things do look up for the family when Anne successfully delivers a baby boy they call Theophilus after his father, and he was born in June 1801. To avoid confusion, I'll refer to this child by his later nickname of Hobbs. By this time on Futural Farm, they had cleared 13 acres, and 13 acres was growing with grain. Theo and Anne's attraction for each other led to another child being born a mere 10 months later, another daughter called Mary, she was born in April 1802. So just to recap, the children in Anne and Theo's family at this point are 
Sarah 10, Joseph 8, Hannah 7, Hobbs 1, and Mary a baby. It's at this stage that perhaps having two babies in this house was enough to drive young Joseph out, as he enlisted with the New South Wales Corps as a drummer, that year aged eight, joining his father's company. The family must have started to feel settled by that time, although production of crops on the farm continued to be problematic. So Theo and Joseph have full-time duty with the military and has four children to care for. They're managing a farm, but at this time something happens that turns everything upside down for the family. What happened? It does. In 1804, so two years later, Theo and Joseph were selected in a group of about 150 soldiers and convicts to settle the northern part of Van Diemen's land, which is now called Tasmania led by Captain William Patterson, just noting that the southern part of Van Diemen's Land was settled the year before. It must have been difficult for Anne to face the prospect of leaving her home and the farm she started with her first husband, Stephen. There she had some security living near a settlement that had been established for 14 years. The move to Van Diemen's Land would put her and the family, her youngest child was two years old at this stage, into an undeveloped wilderness. She had no idea what was ahead for them all. But the family was committed to the move as Theo sold their share of land at Mulgrave Park to Matthew Flinders and Futural Farm was sold to a neighbour, Thomas Rowley. But we expect Anne and the family continued to live there until it was time for them to join Theo and Joseph in Van Diemen's land. Theo's other neighbour, Michael Murphy, was included in the group going to Van Diemen's land, as you explained, Nicole, in episode seven. So Anne and Michael's partner, Hannah, would have had each other for support. The fleet of ships taking the military and convicts to this new settlement were the HMS Buffalo, HMS Lady Nelson, the Francis and the Integrity. Theo and Joseph were on board the Buffalo with Patterson, who now had the title of Lieutenant Governor. As you would expect, the sail was not without its challenges, but the Buffalo ended up sailing into Port Dalrymple on the eastern side of the Tamar River on the 4th of November 1804, followed by the Integrity, which arrived on the 5th, and the Lady Nelson and the Francis on the 21st. They called this settlement Georgetown. However, it wasn't long until Patterson deemed Georgetown to be unsuitable, and he'd found a more attractive place across the river on the western arm of the Tamar River. He sent three soldiers who were carpenters to build temporary quarters before Theo and Joseph and the military moved across, calling this new place Yorkton, leaving a small contingent behind in Georgetown. In their new location, they cleared an area of 40 acres and built thatched huts and a strong log house for the stores. Theo toiled side by side with his fellow soldiers and the convicts to cultivate and plant several pieces of land with vegetables. The weather conditions were favourable and soon their efforts were rewarded with harvests of fresh French beans, potatoes, turnips and other green vegetables being included with the rations. A harvest of grain also appeared possible. The abundance of kangaroos provided plenty of lean red meat and the hides were being distributed amongst the settlers, free and unfree, as days and nights became cooler. As soon as they moved across to Yorkton, as well as clearing land and planting crops, Theo and Joseph worked with the carpenters to finish the home they'd share with Anne and the children, who were Sarah, Hannah, Hobbs and Mary. It wasn't until March 1805, so four months after Theo and Joseph first arrived in Van Diemen's land, that Anne and the family arrived at Yorkton on the HMS Buffalo, along with the other families, including Lieutenant Governor William Patterson's wife. It's interesting to note that her new maid was Michael Murphy's partner, Hannah Williams. So it's possible that their two daughters were most likely cared for by Anne 
as the two families were long-term neighbours and friends. The settlements of Georgetown and Yorkton in the area of Port Dalrymple continued to be supplied with provisions and stores from Sydney Cove, as well as surplus salted pork being sent from Norfolk Island, along with any settlers who were chosen to relocate. From Sydney, Governor King, who'd replaced Governor John Hunter, pressed the Home Office in England over several missives to send additional supplies of salt pork to meet Port Dalrymple's requirements. He noted that the community in Port Dalrymple still must be fostered and not be suffered to languish or to cut at the root of their future subsistence by being obliged to kill their breeding stock. Governor King wanted the Home Office to be fully aware of the dwindling supplies of animal food in Georgetown and Yorkton, and that stores in Sydney Cove were likely to be insufficient to continue supply. Indeed, only 12 cows, 11 horses, and 133 sheep were sent to Port Dalrymple to supplement their livestock in the 12 months since they first arrived. Supplies from the mainland to Port Dalrymple were also inconsistent. For example, in November, the buffalo was dispatched to Port Dalrymple with six months provisions, some breeding stock and settlers, but had to turn back to Port Jackson after being damaged by a hurricane. Whalers brought back news of desperate want, not only in Port Dalrymple, but also the Derwent, which was the settlement in the south of Van Diemen's Land. From Governor King's letters, there appeared to be some competition between the North and the South settlements as to which was more desperate, with the South appearing to overstate their situation. By November 1805, so 12 months after they first arrived, Port Dalrymple had 135 men, 18 women and two children on stores, five free settlers, 11 women and 15 children living independently, making a total population of 186 people, including Theo and his family, of course. But the settlements on the east coast of New South Wales were facing food security issues too, when Governor King had to condemn over 18,000 pounds of salt pork in the stores, which was a part of what had arrived in 1803. This left only 36 weeks of rations for Sydney, Hawkesbury, Parramatta and Newcastle, and even less if they needed to supply the north and south settlements of Van Diemen's Land from this stock. As Theo and his family settled into their new home in Yorkton, and Anne set about planting vegetables in their garden, Theo and Joseph spent their days doing what was required to establish the settlement and ensuring crop and livestock security. Theo's contributions to the new settlement were recognised when Lieutenant Governor Patterson promoted Theo to corporal. But if there's anything we've learned about Theo so far, is that if things were looking promising for the family, the opposite always happens. Thank you, Ray. Yeah, you're welcome, Nicole. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Well, we're going to leave this episode with a bit of a cliffhanger. Next episode, you'll hear part two on Theo Futrell and his family and what becomes of them in the remainder of their time in Tasmania. If you are interested in sharing your story on my podcast, Family History Mysteries, please go to my Facebook page and send me a message. If you would like some assistance in filling in the gaps in your family tree to see what mysteries you solve, please get in touch. I will also have links to Ray's website and other essential information related to Theo so you can go in and do further reading if you choose. And don't forget you can have early access to episodes by subscribing and you'll also gain access to bonus episodes.